Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 44, 18 to 34. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let, let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we, we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my, my Lord, uh, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he leaves his father, the, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of, the, of my Lord. And when my father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes, uh, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. When your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you, have this one also for, if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil, to Shoal. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us. Then his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrows to Shoal. For your servant became a pledge for safe, of safety for, your, for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would bring that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. We had John uh, so eloquently and well. He read our passage today, and that. That was actually the longest monologue in Genesis. Thank you, John. <laughs> um, it's surprising because we are talking about Joseph. We call the series Joseph. And yet for the last few chapters, we see another character coming up and being developed. Somebody that you didn't think. And if you just read the Bible through and maybe Genesis straight through, sure, Joseph is the first person on your mind, but you see this other character come through and really rise up, especially when things go bad. Last week or last chapter, we talked about Joseph inviting them to his house, giving them food, putting five times as much on Benjamin and they ended that chapter, or we ended that chapter with they drank and they were merry. We said that means they were probably drunk. But you see, in the beginning of the chapter and to the end of the chapter, something did change. In the beginning of the chapter, all the brothers were filled with fear. And as we went on in the chapter, you see them letting their guards down, 
little by little until they are completely um, unhinged maybe, but just completely free. And this is what happens. Now that the setting has taken place, everything has put in place where Joseph wants it to be, he commands the steward of the house, I want you to fill the men's sacks or bags with food as much as each person can carry and put the money, the silver that they brought, at the mouth of the sack. Now you have to start wondering, why would Joseph do that? Why would he say, put it at the mouth of the sack? And you can't help but to think Joseph, first of all, was very wise, probably wiser than any of us. And he did things not by just chance. He just goes, put it anywhere you want. He puts it and gives us very specific, detailed instructions to the steward to do that. And I can't help but to think when they went, the ten brothers went, there was coins of silver, maybe one coin of silver each for each bag. And when they go back, they have one coin of silver again in each bag, except Benjamin's. Benjamin doesn't have the silver. He has the cup, the silver cup. And so if you add those silver up, there's 20 times they get silver back. And Joseph was also sold to Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph, being as wise as he is, very careful as he is, as discerning as he is, plans all these things out very thoughtfully. And then he instructs the steward to do these things and then after a short distance go after them and say, what have you done? Didn't we treat you well? How can you repay good with evil? And if you think about it, that is like the worst thing that can happen, isn't it? That's, that's like when I pour out my generosity, my hospitality, my gifts, my money, my time, my energy on this one person perhaps, and that person doesn't repay me back at all, but even worse, that person steals from me. That person stabs me in the back. That person isn't kind in that person's word to me, but in fact, very malicious, violent in their ways to me. That is the worst thing that can happen. And this is how the steward responds. And how the brothers respond back to the steward is also very interesting. Something did happen at that point. What happened was, I think the brothers started liking each other. You remember in the beginning, Reuben goes, I told you so, and everybody just splits. Simeon gets trapped and be like, bye, Simeon, we'll be back. <laughs> and then they all leave. But this time, all the brothers are like, no way. We would never do such a thing. And I don't know if it's because they had this newfound happiness or they were still a little giddy from last night, uh, from the partying. But they're like, if anybody is found with the Lord's things, which meaning Joseph's things, then let them be put to death. And then we'll all, the rest of us, will be your slaves. Uh, I don't know anybody that talks like that these days. But there's always that one person who overspeaks in, in, in a group. And there's always that one person that speaks out of turn, but speaks a little bit more in hyperbole or a little more exaggerated. And you may also have one of those friends. But it's interesting that all of them would say that. But when they said it, they had no idea. This is the furthest thing from their minds. How could we ever do that? We had such a great time. In fact, we're so happy we got to spend time and we were given all this food 
uh, with, with the second in charge of Egypt? That's amazing. A king, even though Benjamin had five times, you have to start wondering, why is Joseph doing this? Why is Joseph doing this? You know, did he see something when he gave Benjamin five times a normal portion? Why would he give, first of all, Benjamin five times a portion? And some people think maybe it's because he was testing the brothers to see if they would treat Benjamin the way they treated him. Maybe he was seeing, I am going to show favor to this guy to see how they react. Or maybe it was, I love them so much, I just can't help it. Because he is my mother's son, makes me my blood brother. And he, he had so much love for him as a younger brother. And so he did that. But I would think probably all, probably all, all of the above. So all these things are probably going to Joseph's head. The tests were coming. Did they fail the tests? We don't know because it doesn't say. But apparently it wasn't good enough because Joseph is going to take Benjamin. And he has determined that. And so they go, we will kill the person that... You can kill the person that actually took the cup, and we will be your slaves. And uh, the guy's like, no, 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 no. Uh, just whoever's found with it. Everybody put down their sacks, and they opened it. And they must have seen the money come out first if they hadn't noticed it before. And then finally, they opened Benjamin's sack. And lo and behold, the cup is there. And now they're just, they don't know what to say. So they tear their clothes, they, they tear, tear, um, their, tear their clothes and then they load up every donkey that they have and they go back to the city. And there's a turn that takes place in this chapter. It doesn't say the brothers, it says Judah in verse 14. Judah and his brothers come back to Joseph's house and they fell before him, which is different from the bowing that we saw before. Bowing and laying low, prostrate is a different word than is used here. They fell before him to the ground because now they're hopeless. They have no idea what happened, but there's nothing they can do. And Joseph goes, what is it that you have done? Don't you know that I have the gift of prophecy? I can tell what you are doing. I've been gifted, so I know. And Judah responds this way, which I think is probably the pinnacle and the climax of this chapter. He goes, what shall we say? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? This is not how normally anybody would talk. In fact, if I went up to you and I said, didn't you do this, 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 and you didn't do it, you would say, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And if the, the, the case that was presented against you was more extreme, like didn't you run that red light after you preached that sermon, Pastor Eugene? It's like, no, 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 I didn't do that. I'm, like, I'm a very lawful, law-abiding citizen. I was like, no, 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 I didn't run that red light. I was like, didn't you go 1,000 miles per hour? It's like, no, 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 no. Three digits, 64.9 is what I'm going to stick with. But what if you started going heavier and the accusation to you was more extreme? Didn't you commit adultery? And if someone said that to you and you didn't do it, you wouldn't respond, 
No, no, I, I didn't commit adultery. No. It would be more, a little more emphatic. Most people would be. They'd be like, what? No. They, they first maybe shock would come. But a lot of people, when something, when you blame them for something and they didn't do it, we see a lot of people even change octaves. Like, what? Like that. They, they go up higher. And some people are more emphatic, and it's like a, a slurring octave. So it's like, what? Right? Like, and then they're going up. But something changes inside you because you're like, I didn't do that. What? No, I did not do that. There is no way. And in the beginning, they were like that. But something changed. And now Judah talks. You know, Benjamin didn't steal the cup. They didn't steal back the money. But when they were accused this time, they said, what shall I say? What shall we say? This is a sign of a broken person. This is a broken person, a broken people. And the way he responded was, God has found out the guilt of your servants the first thing that he exclaims and the first thing that he confesses is that he has sinned against God. In Psalm 51 verse 4, the psalmist writes, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When this comes upon Judah and his brothers, what he realizes is, I deserve the punishment. This is a far cry from the normal person today. The normal person today, if, if you went and you had a line of 100 accusations against you, and 99 were true and one wasn't true, we will go berserk over the one. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. The 99... No comment. But I did not do this. This is what we would do. But Judah does not do that. And in fact, he confesses that he has sinned against God. He remembers that he was the one primarily responsible for killing what they thought was killing Joseph. I believe that when you start out with fear, when you are scared, it leads us to something. I think basically it leads us to two decisions or two points in our lives. One is when you have fear is you hate God. You hate God. When you're scared, you shake your fist in the air. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious, you start to hate God because uh, even I, I, I would tell stories of people, my friends or my coworkers or managers who were atheists, and something bad would happen to them. They would shake their fists in the air and go, why, God, why do you hate me so much? Um, to which, of course, I tell the people when I'm telling the story, I tell my manager or whoever, it's because you're a wicked sinner. That's why God hates you. But I don't say that. I don't say that. I just, I think that sometimes, sometimes. Um, <clears throat> But one side is you hate God. Um, you can ignore, sure, but ignorance or indifference is a sign of hate too. If someone does you wrong and that person is next to you, it's like, I'm just going to ignore you. I'm going to ignore 
ignore you. I mean, but that you can say that you ignore, but all the actions that you do is anything but. Either you hate God or number two, the other side is you fear God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What happened to Judah is incredible because what happened to Judah is out of that fear came repentance. He started to fear God. Now, there's a huge difference between feeling shame and repentance. Feeling shame is not repentance. John, Jonathan Lehman, in his book, Church Discipline, he writes this. A few verses before Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 about church discipline, he provides us with help for determining whether an individual is characteristically repentant. Would the person be willing to cut off a hand or tear out an eye rather than repeat the sin? That is to say, is he or she willing to do whatever it takes to fight against the sin? Repenting people typically are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's spirit does inside of them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends or end relationships. There is the something that happens when we repent, when we turn around, when we decide, you know what? I am going to have a change of mind. There is a reason why Jesus comes, the first thing that he says is the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he gives a command, and that command is repent. Mind you, did Jesus do anything before that? Did he do anything? Did he like show power? Did he die on the cross? And then he says, repent. No, he walked on the earth and as he, and as he started to teach, he goes, repent. You start off by repentance. When we talk with people, when I see interviews or when I myself talk with certain people, a lot of responses are, I will not believe in God until you can prove it to me. And then some other people on the flip side would say, I will only believe in God. Or I will not believe in God if you prove me otherwise as well. So it could go both ways. But what that really is saying is that if you want me to repent, if you really want me to believe in Jesus Christ and turn from my ways, then show me this. What is that saying? It's really saying this, repentance is on my terms then. If I don't get it, if I don't fully get it here, or if I don't get it here, I'm not going to repent. What does that mean? It means I want to make and I will make God fit my own understanding before I do anything. Until I can get God to be scientifically proven that statement alone we should know is a loaded statement because if I can fully fit God into this limited finite sphere of the understanding that I have and then I repent what have I made God 
Haven't I made him this small? And what are you following then? You're not following God. Jesus, before he does anything, he comes to us and says, repent. But how can we repent? You know, we can't repent because even if I give this example to whoever it is, if that person doesn't feel like repenting, that person's not going to repent. It's not up to me. And I would even dare say it's not up to you. It's not even up to you. There is an experiment done, a very famous experiment. Many of college students may have seen this in Psych 101 or some kind of class. But what we learn is that all humans have limited cognitive bandwidth or perception, limited cognitive bandwidth. And that is why, to me, magic is so fun. You know, for the example, I was going to whip out a deck of cards, but I decided not to. But um, I, I'm just kidding. I don't know magic. Uh, but magic has always been intriguing to me too. Because what magic really or illusions are doing is it's giving you and showing you your limited cognitive bandwidth. Case in point, there's an experiment. And this basketball team is told or asked to watch the monitor. And there are people in this experiment people wearing white shirts and black shirts. And they are asked this one question before the experiment starts. And the question is, count how many passes the white team passes to each other. So count how many passes they pass to each other. And sure enough, there's the white team and the black team, and they're all intertwined, and they're passing the ball to each other. And then you're sitting there uh, watching, counting. Oh, one, two, three, four, five. It's either 15 or 16 in the most experiments that I saw. But in the middle of the experiment, in the middle of this, there's a man in a gorilla costume that comes out. He stands in the middle of the floor and he beats his chest and then he walks out. And I kid you not. When they ask them how many passes, the team members would go, 16. And like, that is correct. Did you see the gorilla? And they're like, What? That's amazing, isn't it? Because we're so focused on one thing, we miss the gorilla that comes right into the middle of the room, beats his chest, and then leaves. We as sinners, we're so focused on what? Not on God. It doesn't matter if something came to the middle, beat their chest, but because we're so focused in ourselves, in our own sins, in our addictions, in our failures, in our sadness, whatever it is, ourselves, that when we say, look somewhere else, we're like, what? What happened? Repentance is finally God tearing that veil open, saying it's not about the passes that are being made in that basketball team. That wasn't the point. The point is, did you see the gorilla? Now, some people will say, wait, Pastor, you started with fear, and now you're getting to this repentance. Doesn't the Bible say repentance comes from kindness? And doesn't the Bible say there's no fear in love? And I want to say yes and move on. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I want to say yes, but we also have to take things in context, too. 
The full context is there of there is no fear in love. It says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There is a role that everything plays, and this is a wisdom that we must understand. And we may start off with fear, but with Jesus Christ, you don't end with fear, but you end with love. So there is this, um, there is this unveiling of the spiritual eyes that we need to have. Because once we repent, our focus changes. And Judah's monologue and speech is proof of that. Judah could say, how can you do this to me? How can you do this to us? We did this and this and this. We did that, that, and then you did this. How could you fool us like this and put us in this position? But does Judah say that? When our deacon John read it, that's not what Judah said. In fact, when we read that monologue, Judah mentions his father alone 14 times. 14 times. Who is his father? His father is the father that did not love Judah. Didn't love any of his 10 sons. He loved Joseph. He loves Benjamin. He didn't love Judah. He doesn't deserve this representation. But yet Judah, something changed. Repentance changes you. And it brings about a humility that was impossible before. And he starts talking about his father. I say, if this happens, my father will be destroyed. He will be crushed. He was born to him at a tender young age. He uses the word boy to describe Benjamin. He was an old man and he was given a young boy. And many of you may know, but the older you are, the more precious a child is. I, I think it's just that way. <laughs> so the older you are, the more kind of tender hearted you are to the kid. I knew some young parents, I'm not saying all young parents are like that. I knew some young parents in their teens, late teens, and, you know, the kids, their kids would just run out into the street. It's like, ah, they'll be fine. And everybody else is like, that's crazy. I'm not saying that you should do that, but I'm saying I, would, I don't think I would see any older parent ever do that. In fact, the older you get, like, I see parents walking their kid hand in hand. But I want you to imagine how old Jacob was when he finally had Benjamin and he lost his wife. How precious he was. And Judah isn't saying, that guy, he calls himself my father but doesn't even pay attention to me. But he goes, this would destroy my father. There's a humility that we are to realize, especially today. No matter how bad your mother was, they carried you 24-7 for at least a period of months. And you were covered. There is this humility that leads to self-sacrifice. And that is why we remember Mother's Day with such fervor, passion, with such joy and happiness. Because no matter how bad they were, we are here. Everybody that's here, we've been in our mother's belly for a certain amount of time. 
and we were given that care. But I would dare say that many of us is beyond that and that we were given this self-sacrificing love that we never deserved. But you know, I want to end with this. Mothers don't last forever. And I hate saying that. But it's the truth. As much as we love our mothers, I would encourage you to bless them while you can, to speak words of encouragement and life while you can. But they won't be here on this earth forever. I think the turning point came when I was sharing with uh, some of the pastors here. Um, I visited my mom. And sometimes I would make jokes which are inappropriate and rude. Uh, like, oh, mom, you look really old today. And then she <laughs> she's just get angry. And now I feel bad that I said that in public. But um, I would just joke around with her. And, but this time I was having a conversation with my mom. And she was holding her pill case. And her thumb was shaking like this. And there was a turning point. And that turning point was my mom really is getting old. Uh, she's not going to be with me forever. But I love her. When we love somebody, when we deeply, deeply care for somebody, death destroys us. It crushes us. It hurts us. But this is something that we must also see and understand. Even though he had nothing to repent of, we know of a God that was truly humble. He was perfect and he was perfectly satisfied. There was nothing more he could do to be more satisfied. And he was perfectly satisfied. And there was nothing more he could do to be more perfect because he was perfect. And yet he descended. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is the love that we receive beyond any mother that we can ever receive love from. This is the absolute love. But my friends, it doesn't end there because if someone dies, I am separated from them. And that pain within me lasts as long as I live because love doesn't just vanish. That connection I have with my mom doesn't just disappear because she's gone. It's for as long as I live and as long as I breathe, I remember. But you see, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. And that's the hope we have. Because we can turn around to something. And yes, if you've been mean to your mother, I ask that you would turn back to your mother. It's important. But we don't turn around to only something to have it perish or disappear from us. When we turn around and we repent, we turn around to the ever-loving but ever-living God who says, yes, death is still there, but it will be temporary until I permanently come and vanquish it. So if my mother is parted from me, I will mourn. But in Jesus Christ, I have a hope because I know it is temporary. Because when I turn to him, 
I turn to what is eternal. My brothers and sisters, the call to us from our Lord Jesus Christ is that the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Let's pray. Lord, what shall we say? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? We cannot. We have been found guilty. But Lord, you did not leave us to our own devices and you called us into repentance so that we can turn back to you. Lord, won't you turn your face toward us? Let's take this time to meditate on the word that we've been given and let's pray a prayer of repentance to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Sure. 
my brothers and sisters, my friends, gathered God has called us so that we can turn our hearts to him. And scattered we now go, being as Jesus taught us to be, a light to the world. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with every single mother in this room and everyone that has come to give you worship now and forever. Amen.